0: This episode of American Biography is brought to you by Audible.com. Listeners of this show can get a free audiobook download and free 30-day trial by going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash American Biography. With over 150,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, Audible has something for everyone. Remember, there is no obligation to continue the service, you can cancel at any time with no cost to you, and even keep the free audiobook. Or, you can continue enjoying the great many titles available through Audible by choosing one of their affordable monthly membership options. For this time, I'm going to recommend a classic with a modern twist, Sun Tzu's The Art of War, read by none other than Aidan Gillen, aka Lord Peter Baelish, Littlefinger on HBO's Game of Thrones. And remember, for every person that signs up through our promotional URL, Audible will throw us a few bucks, so don't miss this opportunity to support American Biography by signing up for your free 30-day trial today. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography, The Life of John Marshall, Episode 6, Soldiering On, and On, and On. Last time, we discussed at some length the terrible conditions of the American winter camp at Valley Forge, and amidst the suffering of the soldiers, we were able to catch a glimpse of the upbeat and waggish character of John Marshall as he struggled to keep his compatriots' spirits from foundering. As the spring of 1778 bloomed and von Steuben's training was absorbed by the Continental troops, a much more disciplined and technically proficient Continental force began taking shape. The men learned how to use and maintain their weapons correctly and received instruction on the proper use of bayonet. They also practiced tactical maneuvers, such as marching in a column of fours and how to break from a column to form up a line and collapse a line to form up columns. Besides the new and improved Continental Army 2.0, other important developments were on the horizon. You may remember that I briefly alluded to a little battle in upstate New York back in episode 4. That was the fall of 1777, and American General Horatio Gates had delivered the grandest rebel victory of the war to date with his win at Saratoga. And this had been the decisive event that France used as a pretext to formally recognize the United States as an independent nation, thereby allowing the previously clandestine aid to become a torrent of military supplies, munitions, men, and much-needed naval forces, which deprived Great Britain of its previously unchallenged dominance of the coastal waters and ports of the North American Atlantic coast. At the same time as things were beginning to look up for the Patriot cause, the British High Command was undergoing a shake-up. Despite spending a comfortable winter in the captured rebel capital of Philadelphia, General Howe had been under severe criticism back home for his North American strategy and resigned. He was replaced by his second-in-command, one of his critics, Sir Henry Clinton, in the April of 1778. As the war now became global upon France's entry into the conflict, Clinton, in accordance with a new British strategy of consolidation on the continent, began making preparations to evacuate Philadelphia in order to return to New York City and shore up that British stronghold. Washington had hoped for an early chance to test his newly minted army, and Clinton's slow retreat across New Jersey with his baggage train provided that exact opportunity. Washington dispatched Daniel Morgan's light infantry to harass and further slow the British forces. By felling trees and sabotaging bridges, the light infantry sufficiently impeded Clinton's progress as to allow the pursuing Washington to not only catch up but attack the British rear. On June 28, 1778, Washington ordered General Charles Lee forward with an advanced force to initiate the attack while Washington was to follow with the American main force shortly after. For reasons not entirely clear, Lee began retreating almost as soon as the engagement commenced, and word soon filtered back to Washington that something was amiss, and he rode out ahead of his main body to see just what the hell was going on. He found Lee, confronted him, and relieved him of command, and it was heard to address the fleeing general, as Marshall tactfully phrases it, in terms of some warmth implying disapprobation of his conduct. Despite the operation's inauspicious beginnings, Monmouth probably stands out as Washington's finest performance as a field commander. He stemmed the retreat of his vanguard and ordered the line be reformed. This allowed his forces to halt the British defensive action that by this point had become an advance. Having bought himself time, Washington hurried back to the main body of his army and assumed personal command. He then brought them forward in neat order, the men displaying all their newly honed martial skills and discipline. In his account, Marshall makes several mentions about how unusually hot the day was, noting that it was responsible for a number of deaths on both sides, and describes the fight itself as severe but not decisive. The Battle of Monmouth ended as a draw. Neither army had been put to flight. The Americans could claim victory, as Clinton had ceded the field to Washington before resuming his march to New York under the cover of darkness. But, since Clinton reached New York with his baggage train intact, which was his stated objective, he could equally claim victory. So according to the 18th century warfare rulebook, I guess you'd have to call it a push. Now you might wonder, just where was John Marshall during all of this? Well, this largely seems to depend on who you ask. Here we have an honest-to-goodness, 180-degree difference of opinion between sources. Albert Beveridge claims that at Monmouth, Marshall was with Mad Anthony Wayne, and therefore attached to the advance forces under the overall command of Lee, and asserts that Marshall had been in the fight from first to last. Gene Smith, on the other hand, says the complete opposite, claiming that the company, commanded by John Marshall, had marched off with Daniel Morgan's light infantry days before the battle and was three miles away, well out of supporting distance, and was never directly engaged that day, because in the heat of the battle, Washington plain forgot about them and failed to call them back. Now it would be great if in his own account of the battle, Marshall bothered to give any indication whereabouts he was, but he doesn't. So how can we explain this stark divergence of opinion? On a good day, I find military organization incredibly Byzantine and largely impenetrable, as despite the rigid appearance of battle orders, there's often a great deal of fluidity and improvisation that can make it difficult to track the whereabouts of a single individual. But I think I may hazard a guess as to how things got all mixed up. If you recall, John Marshall was with the 11th Virginia Regiment under the command of Daniel Morgan, which existed within the 3rd Virginia Battalion. The 11th was subdivided into eight companies, one of which was the Fauquier Riflemen, commanded by Lieutenant John Marshall. Back in 1776, when Morgan was given command of the Virginia 11th, he also commanded a provisional rifle corps of 500 men that were handpicked from amongst various companies to comprise a fast-moving light infantry force, which could better utilize Morgan's unique frontier guerrilla tactics. Morgan took this corps to Saratoga in 1777, Marshall was not chosen for that assignment, but was picked for a similar light infantry unit selected by Lafayette. You may recall that this unit was commanded by General William Maxwell and fought at Cooch's Bridge before the Battle of Brandywine. Now, a year later, Lafayette commanded the division within which the Virginia 11th resided. And it's perfectly conceivable that when Washington ordered Morgan to take a light infantry corps, to impede the British, that it would have included the experience, perhaps even recommended John Marshall, who had been selected for a similar assignment in similar circumstances before. It was also certain that parts of the Virginia 11th were in fact mixed up with Lee's forces, as both Lafayette along with Wayne in the advance attack and later absorbed elements of Lee's command after the General's removal. Uncertainty is perhaps inevitable here, But for the reasons I've discussed, and because of Smith's more vigorous sourcing and superior all-around reliability, I'm inclined to declare Beveridge loud wrong on this, and endorse the idea that Marshall was sitting on a distant hill during the battle. Indisputably, on July 1st, 1778, Marshall was promoted to captain, but saw no more action of consequence that campaign season, and after briefly joining the army at winter camp in New Jersey. That November, he headed home on furlough for his first visit since 1776. He brought with him several French officers whom he'd befriended, and an account of his visit was relayed by one of John's younger sisters years later, and serves as a stark reminder that in wartime, Suffering is not the exclusive province of soldiers. When supper time arrived, Mother had the meal prepared for them, and had made into bread a little flour, the last she had, which had been saved for such an occasion. The little ones cried for some, and Brother John inquired into matters. He would eat no more of the bread which could not be shared with us. He was greatly distressed at the straits to which the fortunes of war had reduced us, and Mother had not intended him to know our condition. Witnessing the difficulties endured by his mother, whom it was said Marshall loved with a chivalrous, tender devotion, couldn't have been anything but painful. Her great-great-granddaughter described Mary Keith Marshall as a woman of great force of character, and with her husband and oldest sons gone, off to war. She, like so many women who have served on the home front, demonstrated great strength, determination, and courage to keep her family and property safe and intact through times of hardship, scarcity, and uncertainty. Marshall and Company returned to the Army in May 1779 and took part on the assault of Stony Point near Kings Ferry, New York. Kings Ferry was a crucial link of communication between the New England and Mid-Atlantic states, the strategic importance of which would have been recognized by both sides. The ferry was dominated by two points of land on either side of the North River, Stony Point and Verplank's Point, both of which the British had fortified. Washington wanted to storm both strongholds simultaneously, but deemed the coordination of such an attack impossible, and settled on taking Stony Point on the west bank of the river first. Marshall describes Stony Point as a commanding hill projecting far into the Hudson, which washes three-fourths of its base. The remaining fourth is, in a great measure, covered by a deep marsh, commencing near the river on the upper side and continuing into it below. Over this marsh, there is only one crossing place, but at its junction with the river is a sandy beach passable at low tide. On the summit of this hill, stood the fort, which was furnished with heavy ordnance. For this action, again, a body of light infantry was selected, which again included Marshall, but this time it was placed under the command of Anthony Wayne rather than Daniel Morgan, who had resigned in disgust several weeks earlier in protest at having been passed over for Brigadier General. Marshall did not take part in the initial assault on a fort, but was part of the covered party that were to, as he puts it, reach the scene of action in time to cover the troops engaged in the attack, should any unlooked for disaster befall them. But disaster didn't befall them, and Stony Point was taken with relative ease. The attackers had less than 100 casualties, took over 500 prisoners, and seized the considerable stores of munitions within the fort. A subsequent attack on Verplanck's Point, which Marshall took no part in, failed, making the previous success meaningless. With Verplanck's Point still in British hands, Stony Point was deemed indefensible, and the order was given to withdraw. Two months later, on August 19th, Marshall was once again part of a covering party for a light infantry strike force, this time under the command of Major Henry Lee, who led a midnight strike upon a former rebel fort now occupied by the British at Paulus Hook, New Jersey. Like Stony Point, Patriot forces were successful, taking 159 prisoners, but made no attempt to hold the fortifications, and these were simply retaken by the British after the Patriot withdrawal. The action at Paulus Hook was followed by an extended period of relative inactivity until Washington put the army into winter quarters at Morristown, New Jersey, in December of 1779. However, many in the Virginia regiments were approaching the end of their enlistment periods, including a full third of Marshall's company. Therefore, they were sent back to their native state. Once arrived, those who had served their terms were discharged, while supernumerary officers like John Marshall were given an extended furlough until new troops could be raised. But in reality, except for a singular later incident, which we'll discuss when it happens, Marshall's military career was effectively over. Now we've spent five episodes detailing Marshall's wartime experiences, not because I'm particularly fond of military history, because I'm not, but because these were important formative years for a man who would go on to spend nearly 40 years at the pinnacle of national power and because understanding how these experiences came to shape his worldview will help us identify his motivations as we move forward in his and America's story. Of Marshall's army years, Beveridge writes, No one can really understand Marshall's part in the building of the American nation without going back to these sources. For like all living things, Marshall's constructive opinions were not made, they grew. They were not the exclusive result of reasoning. They were the fruit of an intense and vivid human experience working upon a mind and character. His time serving in the military indelibly shaped the young Virginian. This experience was not unique to Marshall. Many who served in the Continental Army and marched from one end of the continent to the other, fighting in places with unfamiliar names and alongside men from far-off places made the Continental Army one of the only true national institutions of the Revolutionary Period. And it's not surprising that many who came out of this institution held distinctly nationalistic views. Marshall was a keen observer, and undoubtedly recognized that Congress and the states hampered the war effort by often failing to achieve unity of purpose, and by, at times, seemingly working at cross-purposes with one another. Surely these memories echoed in Marshall's mind when years later he wrote to Joseph Story, saying that in the army, I found myself associated with brave men from different states who were risking life and everything valuable in a common cause, believed by all to be the most precious, and where I was confirmed in my habit of considering America as my country and Congress as my government. I partook largely of the sufferings and feelings of the army, and brought with me into civil life an ardent devotion to its interests. My immediate entrance into the state legislature opened to me my view that the causes which had been chiefly instrumental in augmenting those sufferings, and the general tendency of state politics convinced me that no safe, and permanent remedy could be found, but in a more efficient and better organized general government. Alright, as always, thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, or concerns, please send them to me at American Biography Podcast at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting it by signing up for a free audiobook download and free 30-day trial membership with Audible by visiting www.audibletrial.com forward American Biography. Or you can click the donate button on the website, AmericanBiography.Webs.com. You can also help by liking or sharing American Biography on Facebook. Or you can always leave us a nice iTunes review. And actually, I want to take just a moment to thank the people who have recently signed up for Audible and for those who have left iTunes reviews. Every bit of community participation helps, and I really appreciate your help. That's all for today, so please join me next time when we take a look at what a 24-year-old unemployed officer does when he has lots and lots of time on his hands. So until then, thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.